Greetings and salutations. You've successfully arrived at the bloody, disgusting network. The passage of time will now bring you to something strange, unique, and idiosyncratic. Have a good time. Surprise! Did you miss me, Andy? I sure missed you. I told you. We were gonna be friends to the end. And now... It's time to play. I got a new game, sport. It's called Hide the Soul. And guess what? You're it. From the Playland Fire in Sweet Home Chicago to a coming of rage in Hackenslash, New Jersey, we are Halloweenies. Halloween, trick-or-treaters, dreamers, campers, suspects, friends till the end, and what are you going to say for this one? And priests. Priests. Oh, Pazuzus. God. Altar boys. Uh, and Pazuzus. Captain Howdy's. Captain Howdy's. Yes, we are the Halloweenies, and you've heard all three of our voices. I am Michael Marin Rothman, mm. uh, and... Mr. Daniel, uh, what name are you going by today? I'm going to say Dan Karras Caffrey. I think we've oh, all got a, a nice one. alliteration baked yeah. in. I mean, my, Rachel's name oh. already has an alliteration. Might have a triple alliteration. Rachel Reagan Reeves. Oh, look at this. <laughs> that's that, a good name. Is that like the first time? That's like a pretty, then they're all iconic characters. That's like yeah, the three iconic good. characters. Yeah, we didn't have to settle for, I mean, I could have said like Dan Dennings Caffrey for Burke. Oh, but that's I'm not true. Be him. Nah, Burke's kind of, there's a lot to talk about there. Yeah. <laughs> There's a lot to talk about with this movie, if you couldn't tell, based on the references that we've had, and, I don't know, the title of the podcast episode. We are talking about The Exorcist. It's uh, turned 50 years old this month. We just got to see The Abomination that uh, landed in theaters, I guess, for a week, thanks to Taylor Swift, uh, The Exorcist Believer. And I say that as someone who loves David Gordon Green, including Halloween Ends, which horror Twitter just seemingly loves to beat on. Anyway... I, you know, we, we are busy. We are incredibly busy here at the Halloweenies. We are incredibly busy at the Losers Club. And it's hard for us to be able to go, okay, let's talk about The Exorcist. <laughs> because it's one of the most important yeah. movies of all time. Not even just horror movies. Just one of the most important movies of all time. And so we could literally dedicate probably, and you could challenge us one year, on us doing a whole season just on this one movie. And I think it could actually happen. But we're not going to do that because next year we're doing Alien and we are just done with Chucky, which means that we kind of had some time this month. Not a lot of time because we've got some other assignments that we got to do. We've got enough time. So we thought about experimenting with an idea. And that idea is to take the anniversary, kind of like if you listen to our, our Losers Club episodes, if you're a listener or even a patron over there, we do a thing called Oops All Tangents. And essentially, we give ourselves an hour to talk about whatever topic the, our patrons give us. So we thought, for this, 
to solve the crisis here, because we, we first we wanted to do a commentary, and then we realized the two-hour commentary on one of a very important film, we're not there. We don't want to do that yet, not, especially not to this film. We, we, this deserves a deep dive, as I said, could be a whole mm-hmm. full season. We're not. We don't have time for that either. So we, you know, pulled from the oops thing and decided, well, it's fifty years, fiftieth anniversary. Let's do fifty minutes on. The Exorcist. So that's what, exactly what we're going to do. We're going to riff on it. This isn't going to be the. This isn't your grandpapa's <laughs> Halloween episode. Your grandpapa's. <laughs> yeah, the, the, your grandpapa's Halloween episode. Whatever the saying is. This isn't the traditional Halloween episode. We're not going to go and spend three hours on history because we don't have the time for that. So we're just going to shoot the shit and talk about a movie that I think it's pretty safe to say, arguably one of the most important American films of all time. So we've got our introductions down. Let's talk Exorcist. So. I'll kick it off. So for me, this is a movie that just has seemingly always, well, it's always existed because I was born in 84, but it's one where even more so than any title that we've covered on this podcast, I think it's, a th- it's it, the reputation, you know, preceded it in a way that I couldn't even say the same thing for Halloween. Totally. This is, it's just been like, oh, horror movie, horror, the genre in general, Exorcist. That's a movie. What, what about you, Rachel? What was, do you recall like the first time you heard about this movie? I don't recall the first time I heard about it because it's always kind of been there. And my dad is a big movie person. And so like he's just randomly spewing quotes or things. And there's so many of them I didn't realize what he was talking about till later. And this was kind of one of them. So like Jaws I heard about way before I'd seen the film. And that was just yeah. because of the, the song. And I've talked about that before in this yeah, like I guarantee you, there was never a time that my mother made pea soup for dinner that my dad didn't have some crack about The Exorcist to say, right? And so, like, yeah. that's the first thing I heard about it. And my mom would always be like, stop it. Like, don't, like, that's, it's good for you, you know? And, but yeah. he would, oh, like, that's where I heard about it was at the dinner table. And he would be just like, you know, oh, the power of peas compel you or something stupid. Like, <laughs> that's and, pretty funny. And I never got it till later. And it was some, but like looking back now, I'm just like, God, he's such a dork. Like, that's totally did where the, I get uh, so Did the jokes just get more unwieldy? Like, the eighth time you had pea soup for dinner, we see, like, wow, this soup really makes me want to just jump out the window and fall down the staircase and break my neck. And you're just like, all right, we get it. No, yeah. They didn't get, like, that's the thing, though. They never really evolved. Like, it's like, it was like his bit. It was like the same material for the last 38 years. It's like, oh, I hope my head doesn't turn around. (laughs) (laughs) Eating this, yeah. Did he ever, like, kind of take a dramatic turn, though? And it was just like, he he walks up to the table and he's like, you know, this this is not a day in my life that I don't feel like a fraud. Other priests, doctors, lawyers, I I talked to them all. Here's your soup. I thought that (laughs) was just him being depressed or something, but now it's it's all making more sense. But like, oh, I love that quote from The Exorcist. What quote? Mm -hmm. And you're like, oh, okay. Dad, are you you okay? (laughs) Yeah. So that's a, that's a, I understand that kind of connection for sure. Because I, I personally can't even eat pea soup anymore because of this movie. It's just like, or ever. The idea of pea soup has always grossed me out, but especially after watching this movie, it's like, how do you, how do you ever go back? Caffrey, what what do you recall as like the first time hearing about this? And I met, and like, how long did that go? Where you, you know, you you heard about it and then finally sat down to watch it? Yeah, so it's interesting. I was trying to remember the titles of these books the other day when I was ten at my school library, Mitty P. Lock Elementary in uh, Newport Ritchie, Florida. They had these books that 
were essentially compilations of horror movies and we kind of go into the behind the scenes and give the whole plot of the movie. Oh, cool. And I remember they had the exorcist in there, nightmare on Elm street gremlins. And I can't remember what the other one was. And that was my first introduction to the exorcist. And it was interesting because I had seen gremlins. I hadn't seen nightmare at that point, but I knew enough about it. I feel like that was what I call a playground movie. Like just, you heard whispers of Freddy right. and you know, what, what the kill scenes were like and all that. But I never heard anyone talk about The Exorcist. It was in this book, this little slim volume for kids. And honestly, I think the idea was, I mean, obviously The Exorcist is probably not appropriate for most 10-year-olds. I think the idea is that, okay, we can introduce kids to these movies, and even, even give them the whole plot. And they had like black and white photos and just a little bit about the, I mean, it's like a Wikipedia entry, essentially. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'll have to look it up and see if I can find exactly what these books were. But that's where I got it from. I didn't know what the word exorcist or exorcism meant. And so I asked my parents about it because obviously they're, you know, children of the 70s, so they came of age and saw it back then or, or were around for the impact of it. I don't think I... I actually saw the movie until about when did the uh version you've never seen come out? Was that it's 2000, 2002? Yeah, it Was might it have been like 2001, no, or actually, it might have just been no, I think it was 2001. It's yeah, 2000 like, or 2001, I, yeah. I had still never seen it, and by that point, I had started watching horror movies, had seen all the Halloweens, all the nightmares, and everything. And my dad was like, Oh, let's go see that. And he was not a big fan of the additions, he felt like it really bogged down the movie, yeah, made it slow. I agree with him. I was kind of blown away, though, because I'd never seen the film before. So I was just kind of yeah. thinking about that when we left. And it was interesting, though, because even though I really enjoyed it, I was kind of struck by how patient the movie is. And the movie the movie to me is not slow, but it's not rushed either. I feel like it really lets you live in everything. I'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, just how familiar it all feels. Just like you feel like you're really, truly being led into this world. I don't mean just the horror elements, but the family elements too. Like they, you're just like, Oh, this is everything's here already. Mm -hmm. There's no exposition needed. We're just seeing this dynamic. And so even as a, you know, seeing it as a high schooler, I remember being like, Oh, that feels for lack of a better word. It feels more dramatic than most Mm -hmm. horror movies do. Yeah. And that's only grown in a very good way for me as I've gotten older. And of course in the years since I've, I feel like I watched this movie every other year, if not every year. I mean, again, it gets better and better. Yeah. I did see Believer the other day. I know we're not talking about I know. That, it's I, just, uh, you were sending me close to that. The rumors were true. Right? They were, I just good watched Lord. it a couple of days. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, man. What, what, I kind of uh, do talk. Yeah, what were, what were, what's your, like, star rating? If I'm, not, I'm not a believer. It was, I'm, oh. Yeah, I was, like. <laughs> it, like, made me mad. It was especially, like, I rewatched this yesterday, too, just to, like, and I'm, like, what? Like, yeah. why, Burston? What did they have on you? Like, yeah. why? Like, why are I you? Guess, money. She did it for charity. I think she I think she did, all yeah. The money oh, okay. to this charity, so yeah. All right, I, um, that's, But that's it, it's funny, because I just rewatched it this Halloween for Halloween Hell, and yeah, watching that and then going right to Believer. It's, it's rough. It, it just contextually kind of pisses you off, but anyway. Yeah, so. Ra- Rachel, when did you finally thing. see it after, you know, being harassed with the pea soup forever? Yeah, it's funny. It was high school too. Like okay. I definitely like was not allowed to watch this at home. And it's funny, like hype bites me in the ass so many times because I buy into it and then I get disappointed, right? And this I feel like just thinking about it right now is one of the few movies where the hype and the reputation actually was met. Like cuz my mm-hmm. mom would always talk about like Oh God, it's so scary. I can never see, like, I never want to watch that again. I saw it when it came out and I'm never going to watch it again. It's terrifying. And so hearing it from her and just the reputation that it had as a film and then finally seeing it, it's one of the few films that lived up to the hype. 
And like, I wasn't disappointed. I was pretty, I was, I was a little confused at first. I'm going to be honest. The intro started and I was like, what's happening? Wait, why are we in Iraq? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And like how long it went on. I was like, am I watching the right movie? (laughs) Would you guys say that? We're talking about hype. I feel like the hype for this movie is very different than like Jason or Freddie or, or mm-hmm. Michael Myers. Like, I don't feel like I heard kids being like, you got to watch The Exorcist, you know? And no, I think it's because yeah. it doesn't involve or revolve around yeah. a serial killer. Like, a, like a, I think kids actually glom onto the killers in a weird way. And I don't think they're going to glom onto like, oh, yeah, it's like so cool when she masturbates right. the crucifix and blood comes out, you know? I mean, there are definitely images in this movie that I think would be haunting to kids. And it was to me growing up. I, I mean, I saw it at a young age. I think it was right after Universal Studios opened. It's, I think I talked about this on the Ghost Story episode that we did in Losers Club. But like, they used to have one of the first makeup and art shows was uh, they did. I think it was like The Fly. This is back when they were actually doing like really incredible movies as their centerpiece, as opposed to the throwaway Universal picture that they they left behind. Where it's so bad that the hosts are even making fun of it. But they this this time I remember it just had opened. The park had just opened and. There was a series of shots of famous things that that happened under the, that banner, and I want to say they showed Ghost Story, but then they also had, if I recall, like there was I thought there was a Reagan thing, but I don't maybe that's not the case because it's Warner Brothers. So, but then Warner Brothers does do stuff with Universal. So anyway, either way, I I knew around that point when I was around five or six about this movie. But here's the thing about The Exorcist that I love probably more than any other horror movie. It's something that you just that, that the two of you hidden on. It's that this isn't a movie that that we are going to talk that we talk about on the playground. This isn't like the oh, did you hear about yeah. the lore of Jason? There's this because this movie is so like adult in the sense that you're not really tackling the the, the horror of this movie isn't just the explicit stuff that you see. The horror of this movie gets better and better with age as you start realizing the sort of existential themes that are part of this. And like, you know, the, the, the questions about faith and the questions about life and the afterlife and what all this means. And, and, and I think that is partly why this has been such a timeless movie and yet why I think the franchising aspect of it has never worked because it is such a singular experience and so much of what makes this movie really hit hard on across multiple generations is that sort of ubiquity in what's going on in, in everyone in this movie, but especially Father Karras. And that, the, you know, the battle of good and evil and how it relates to our own, you know, that's a macro battle. But the micro battle is how we, you know, debate our own good and evil and how we, uh, you know, accept or maybe don't accept some sort of influence above us and how that, you know, how we look at our own lives in, in the, in that lens. And I think for me growing up, this movie has gotten only scarier because of that. hundred percent. Yeah. Well, and especially like Chris McNeil's character, like as I've gotten older, like seeing what she's going through with Reagan and, you know, just the horror of watching her child suffer. And then I, you know, the emotional and physical and mental pain and torture is like she's going through in this film, like not only seeing her child suffer, but also having to face and make all these decisions when there's not really a good outcome and you don't know what to do. And that, you know, being that mother, a single mother, basically, because the dad is, you know, I don't know where, but not a good, not a good figure. So just... You know, her story is something that didn't 
hit me quite the same way, you know, in, in high school as it does now. And now I'm watching it and I'm gravitating so much more towards her story and that performance. And I just, I find it just harrowing, to be honest. Well, and I, th- I think too, when something like that is happening to a loved one, whether it's your child or a parent or whatever else, now granted, we all reach the point where you get sick and die, right? Like that's the part of being a human. Thanks, but for the most part, I think when you're really worried something horrible is going on with you, like, oh, I have a brain tumor, I have this, mm-hmm. it's usually not that, right? It's usually something way less. It's like you're overreacting. And what's really scary about this is she's actually keeping a pretty cool head about everything and trying to accept all the rational explanations that would be what you would encounter in everyday life, right? Yeah. And then the fact that it is something so irrational, not only that, but something that goes against her beliefs, that is very scary to me because that so seldom happens in real life, but it can happen in real life. Not, mm-hmm. I, mean, I don't think demon possession necessarily, but it would be like if my kid was sick and I was really worried about it and it, it wasn't just the flu, it wasn't just a cold, it ended up being Ebola or something awful like that, right? Like I feel like this thing that's like almost impossible to fight. So that's mm-hmm. what I think about a lot as we go on, how she has to keep descending in more and more into irrationality. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then also at the same time putting... Like, God, that spinal tap scene. Is, oh, it's, it's brutal. A lot of people say it's unnecessary. Brutal. I don't think it's unnecessary necessarily because it's showing how far she's willing to go for science and the logical explanation, and that ends up causing her daughter great pain, and then her daughter has to experience even greater pain mm-hmm. from this irrational force. It's like science fails her, and so does faith in many ways. And, yeah, I mean, that's definitely more harrowing as I get older. But- you know, growing up, it was always that scene where she comes in and the furniture moving, and there's just something about seeing the sort of ghostly like appearance of things moving without there actually being any reason. And that, for yeah. as a kid, that always scared me. But as I grew up, it's it started to be that 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 dread that comes of knowing that there's something upstairs that you that that is sick, which then evolves into as you get older, this thing that's upstairs that could possibly be the demon that could possibly be something that you can't explain. And I think that's a very, as you're talking about Caffrey, it's a very human element to have is because we've all been there. I mean, whether it's like our own parents that are, you know, ailing upstairs, whether it's our brother and sister, whether it's our own kids, that dread that comes from it of just having to exist while this other thing is existing in your own house is partly why this movie is so unnerving to watch is because the more and more she does extend, uh, you know, descend into that hell, it's hard to believe anyone could even have any motor function at that point. Like I always, I always remark, you know, when Kinderman finally shows up at the house and this is like, Mm. you know, months into this and it's just like you, she's there's like it's unexplainable what's happening and yet she's still just sitting down in that very house having tea and talking to someone while this oh when when she uh, asks him like do you want another cup of coffee and he says yes like the look on her face like god damn it like it's it just captures just everything about what you're talking about just yeah i can't do this right now (laughs) you know that's it feels like that's what she's thinking (laughs) Also, too, with the room upstairs, because, you know, we see possessed people or sick people in lots of horror movies, but this movie does such a good job of conveying the physical change of the room and how it just feels icky in there, like you want to disinfect everything, the coldness, yeah, Yeah. which I think has biblical roots, right? I'm not like a 
theological scholar or anything, but isn't there something in the Bible about demons feeling cold or Satan feeling oh. cold or something well, like that? Go- well, I don't ghosts, know. I mean, maybe probably that's probably why like, like ghosts, you know, the room gets cold and stuff yeah. maybe. It's, it's, it's just creepy to me because I feel like I associate demons and Satan with hell and it being hot, right? Even in the opening scene, it's this very scorching environment mm-hmm. and the fact that it's actually really cold. And then the room was that cold, right? I think they, I, I think they, they did. Actually, yeah. It was uh, on a, Linda Blair got Wonder sick Blitz. from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, oof, man. No, you can just feel that room as a physical presence and just how it changes the mood of everything else in the house. It's funny, the room doesn't get especially, I mean, there's pea soup or whatever, but it's not like the room gets completely messy. It's not like the room looks so disgusting, but something about it just feels slimy. Like, yeah, I've, I I've just want to go through with the whites. They, they strip it of all her personality. They move everything out of the room. It's pad. It's just like Reagan doesn't live here anymore, you know, and just like how sad that is because before it's like a little girl's room she's got a fish tank she's got her records she's got it's cute and it's like all of it's gone like she's not there anymore this is the first time i can remember seeing a ouija board on a film i don't know about you guys <laughs> i think it was yeah because- I know. do you think they does that feel cliche at all this point i don't know i, I don't think so because it's it's not like highlighted a lot almost you know it's just kind of like dropped in the beginning and i wonder too if did Ouija boards back then have the same connotation as today? Like, did everyone know? I like, I feel like know. everyone knows what a Ouija board is now. now. But did they know back then? Yeah. Well, it's it's based I on that it. story. The so the you know William Peter Blatty's novel is based on something that happened in 1949 with a 14 year old boy. The alias that he had was Roland Doe, and it happened in suburban Maryland. And the story ran in the Washington Post during Blatty's junior year, and essentially. It's the same thing as the movie. It's or the you know is a story. It's that the, this kid started experimenting with a Ouija board with his aunt in early 1949, and then he started experiencing demonic episodes. And a lot of what we see in the movie is in the book also is stripped strictly from that story. So I think that's a good transition to get into just discussing the filmmakers and the talent and the cast behind this because I think. This movie doesn't work without the sort of minds behind this movie. I think that's a good seg, actually, to talk about the talent behind this film, especially the crew members, Blatty and Freakin, William Freakin, because without these two, and especially the cast that you know would come from these two, this movie doesn't transcend time. <laughs> it really doesn't. I, yeah. think, I think the way this movie was made, the way that it's stuck to the truth's that the novel really leaned on also mm-hmm. is why it is just, it hits every generation. It's just it, this, you watch this movie and this doesn't feel like a blockbuster. This feels, there has a very documentary style to it. And that's a credit to William Freakin who, you know, he was cutting his teeth in documentaries. He cut his teeth in you know, basically filming live, pl- live plays. He, I mean, he changed, you know, politics with, you know, one of his shorts is, or one of his documentaries as well, winning Oscars for that. So I just, there's just a lot of talent. He's coming off of the French connection. And I think a lot of that energy, a lot of that, that, that commitment to realism, even pushing Blatty in the corner a little bit sometimes and saying, you know, I love your book. Don't betray your book. Mm-hmm. And he talks a little bit on the leap of faith documentary that I've watched more times than anyone in the world about, he quotes Fritz Lang is he said that he had this like sleepwalking security when he was making this movie and everything that wanted, everything that he needed, he just insisted upon. 
And that included like, I mean, at, at one point it wasn't actually, and there was different casting that, there was, that came to, the, to fruition because of this. You know, originally it was supposed to be Stacey Keach. <laughs> As Karis? Yeah, instead of Jason Miller, huh. and he was actually he was actually contracted, and they had to like pay him off for that, and like you know the studio let it happen. But this was not an easy shoot, and there's a lot of weird, you know, things that all that happened on set that I think made everyone a little rocky. There was a death even so, and you can watch all of that in like the Curse Films episode that they have on the film. And yeah, I mean, you've uh, got the one guy in the Spinal Tap scene who went on to become a murderer. Or That's crazy. Maybe already it was a murderer easy. at that time. Which yeah. inspired cruising, I think, right mm-hmm. later on, which freaking directed, of course. It's interesting hearing you say that. What do you say? Sleepwalking security. I like yeah, that he, phrase a lot because he said that fr- that's what Fritz, Fritz Lang would say when you just you know the choices that have to be done and you yeah. just commit I, to it. I love that phrase because I'm not comparing myself to William Freakin, but you know I've I've done a lot of creative projects in my life uh, and. Some of them end up being great when you don't think they're going to be great. Some of them end up sucking when you think they're going to be awesome. And then every now and then, I think this is the rarest thing to experience as an artist. Every now and then, you get to work on something where you're just feeling, okay, I'm doing this right. I made the right call on this. It is just kind of, I know I said the movie a little while ago, but you are just kind of cruising. Like You just, you almost <laughs> feel like you're getting foresight into the future or something you can just like feel it working and i mean that's maybe happened with me like once or twice if i'm being generous to myself out of everything i've ever worked on i feel like most of the time you can't predict how anything's going to turn out you can't predict how the process is going to be you can't predict how your decisions are going to play out but every now and then you kind of get lightning in a bottle and you know you're getting lightning in a bottle and so i I, and that the movie rings very true of that because there is a kind of even though it was very hard to make, there is kind of an ease to it when you watch it. Like there's mm-hmm. just something, it feels like there's another force at play going on, if that makes sense. It feels, well, it feels confident. It feels mm-hmm. like. Yes, that's a good word for it. Yeah. yeah. It's just, this is what they intended to make and it's on screen. It doesn't, you know, cause how often have we seen films? And it's like, oh, this is cut to shit. You know, oh, yeah. this one feels like, no, this is what was intended. I'm seeing the vision of the director, which is always just amazing when you can feel that when, I mean, you mentioned Caffrey with your dad not liking the additions that they had in the the new the, the version you've never seen, which you know is the cut that Warner Brothers always puts out there. I mean, I saw it this past October when it was part of the Fathom Events thing. I missed it. I missed the music box during the original thirty-five millimeter print of the, the the original theatrical cut. But I think what I love about the theatrical cut is for that confidence that you're talking about. Like when yeah. you add in all these other things. It's still a great movie. Don't yeah, get me wrong. Like, I, it, yeah, I still like that version. It's, yeah, it's still very cool. But like, it feels just. It, it has this sort of uncanny valleyness to it because you know it. There's just it doesn't have. It's not that it doesn't have the confidence. It just doesn't groove the same way. Yeah. And it, you know, like just even the idea that it starts out in the original theatrical cut of just boom, Exorcist. You get the title and like that, and it goes from there. And there's something. There's just something so abrupt and yet so stylized about it at the same time. But you get the sense that he's ready to go. Like he wants to just tell the story as as fast as, you know, in the, the time that he's given. Because when you, who's read the book? Has everyone read the book here? I've read yeah. the book, yeah. Yeah, yeah. the book's great. I, I, finally, I finally actually was able to carve out some time between Stephen King and Stephen King by being able to read yeah. it back in April. And I, I like knocked it out in like a day or two. It's yeah. just, it's, it's such a great read. And what I've noticed in that is it's the same thing that Freakin does is that he has a commitment to realism there. I mean, there's fo- far more tests well, 
that he, that Reagan goes through in the book than she does even in the movie. I mean, and correct me if I'm wrong. And Rachel, do you have a first edition there? It looks like a first edition it's to a, me. Yeah, it's a first edition, but it's like a book club edition. Oh, so. that's the best kind. I, but in the book, it, am I wrong in that the final, the exorcism and the final confrontation, it's a little bit more impressionistic, right? Like it doesn't go quite as graphic as the movie does. And as a result, you are questioning a little bit of, oh, is this actual demonic possession or is it something psychological? Like, isn't the book slightly more ambiguous? Am I getting that That's wrong? That's how I remembered it. Yeah, it is. It's it's also longer. It goes on for it goes on for weeks as opposed to seemingly one night in this. I think it's pretty much it's inferred in this movie that it's like it's only been one night. Because I think that he goes goes back, he comes back. Yeah, it's one night that he has. Whereas I was kind of surprised when reading the book that I was like, oh, yeah, it would make sense that this would be like weeks and weeks because that's what you always hear about from you know past texts about these type of things. Mm-hmm. Well, because in the real event, the real event was over months and maybe even years, wasn't it? I think the real event that inspired Blatty to write the novel. I think so. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a long term. It's a long running thing. Yeah. Well, and it's funny hearing that what you all were saying about the uncanny valleyness and just the kind of the tryhardness of the cut you've never seen. I think about that spider walk or crab walk scene, whatever you want to yeah. call it. Right? It's the most famous. Edition, right. it's where they're downstairs and yeah. you see Regan, you know, walk on in like a weird yoga pose down the stairs and you think blood comes from her mouth or something. Now, like taken on its own, it's a scary scene, right? Like it looks freaky, mm-hmm. but we don't need that at that point in the movie. It's almost like they're trying to show, no, no, this is scary. Look, it's horror. You should be scared now. And we need to turn it up to 10 right here. Whereas in the theatrical cut, it's no, we're going to keep hinting at everything and hinting at everything and then show this and then we're going to escalate a little bit more and then a little bit more, then a little bit more. And before you know it, it's out of control. I think that's a perfect example of that. When I, all right, so this is, I brought this moment up. I can't remember. I was texting with someone from Halloween or Losers Club just about The Exorcist and what I love. And rewatching it this time, there's this moment in the very beginning. We haven't formally met Father Karras yet, but it's when Chris is shooting that scene. Mm-hmm on campus with Burke and her and Burke are just kind of riffing off each other. And I think yeah. she swears at him or something and the crowd laughs and you see Karis in the he's crowd, there, just as like an yeah. observer and he just laughs like, Oh my mm-hmm. God, this is so cool. I'm getting to watch these actors. It doesn't really have much to do with anything in the rest of the movie. Maybe it plays into his love of movies that we see when he's talking to Kinderman later, but we see this just like kind of him enjoying himself for just a brief second. And then we see him shortly after that, walking away from the shoot, looking very tortured and going into his main arc of the movie. There's something about the fact that the first shot we see of him is not him praying. It's not him by his dying mother's bedside. It's not him talking intensely to that other priest. Like we could have had it that the first time we really see him is where Chris spots him. And he's talking, he's you know kind of um, distraught mm-hmm. and talking to the other priest that actually probably would make more sense for his arc. I love that the very sh- first shot of him is him laughing at, an actor and a director. There's something so, like you said, confident in that. And we would not see that in any other movie made today. Like right oh, off no, the bat, not at all. they're like, no, we're going to yeah. let these characters have many sides to themselves. And we're not even going to explain what those sides are. We're just going to put it out there. It almost feels like the movie, like you said, the movie's improvised or something, but it, mm-hmm. even though it's not, but it, I think, I think it does tie back to that. Those documentary roots you were talking about with Friedkin. Absolutely. Rachel. It, it humanizes him, right? It 100%. just shows yeah. like he's a, yes, he's a priest, 
but that's not his entire world. It's also like, hey, I don't know, maybe movies are an escape for a lot of people. <laughs> like, that's why we enjoy it. And for a moment, he's escaping this, you know, crisis that he's going through internally and just is able to go to a movie set and revel in how cool that is. And I mean, that's something that th those are the moments that I love so much. Like when Chris is walking down the street on that leaves strewn yep. sidewalk and she's just taking in the moment, and you see the nuns and you hear the music and the same thing when Karis is going to the his apartment and you see all the graffiti on the buildings and the kids jumping on the cars. Like it just that coupled with the intro, which I've gone back and forth about why is this here? And, and now I realize it's like, oh, this is it really makes this whole thing feel grounded and that these are real people. And I, I believe that. And it just makes everything that happens all the more terrifying because of that world that we see around them. Yep. And that's it, it, to those are all things that had that create both atmosphere and community, right? Yeah. And lore without being explicit about the lore. Ooh. I mean, nowadays it's the complete opposite. I mean, I'm not trying to sound like old man yelling at cloud, but like, you know, when I watch one of the reasons why I gravitate towards the 70s, which I just think is the the greatest era of of, of all creativity, to be quite honest with you, leading up to the 80, 1980, which I just think is the best year of pop culture. But I think when you look back at these films, it's exactly what you're saying, Catherine. They have the time to breathe. And and when you think about it, it's far more true to the book, which one of the things I loved about the book that, look, this is a diamond movie. Don't get me wrong. I think this is a five-star movie. But one of the, the novelties of that book is being able to exist with these characters and being able to just kind of see what the day-to-day -day life is and seeing what this larger-than-life, unexplainable thing could do to these people on the day-to-day -day basis. And there's a lot of joy in that because Blatty's just a fucking great writer or was just a great writer. And a lot of the dialogue is snappy. There's a lot of communication with between characters that you wouldn't seemingly pair like Kinderman and Karis. And, you know, there's just, there's just so much life that you're able to observe. And to Freakin's credit, he tries to lean on those aspects of it as much as he can. So I do think that when you get those scenes and they are these sort of like, well, that's interesting. The exact scene that you're, I'm glad you brought it up because I, I wanted to bring that up too. It's just, you, th those things add so much more than say another set piece that could be elaborate and cost $10 million. Well, then Reagan or, going down the stairs, right? Yeah. Like it, yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, I think it says something that, I mean, Rachel brought up the scene uh, with Chris walking home. Mm -hmm. That's the only time that you hear tubular bells in the movie, which is the more or less the theme of the movie at this point, even though it's from an excellent piece of music. You hear that, and it's not even during a scary scene. It's right? just like a mood-setting scene. Yeah. They could play that, I mean, during the exorcism scene at the end. They don't. They play it there and then at the credits, right? And that's it. And, I mean, Freak even said, because Jack Nietzsche, who was in a, a Crazy Horse with Neil Young, also I think was a total psychopath. But anyway, he did the music for it. the but, same Jack Nietzsche who did, like, Stand By Me score and stuff? Yeah, yeah, or? yeah. He, oh, um, wow. he did right. a lot of score work. Yeah, him and, I don't know, you should read about him. He's... um. He's playing piano on a lot of Neil Young, like after the Gold Rush. He has a very specific, like, tinkly piano tone that I really yeah. enjoy. But I, th I think he's, I think he's like a Phil Spector type. He, like, you know, like shot yeah. out the lights in his house kind of thing. Sure. Well, like freaking who shot off a gun to scare Karis when he was, All those fucking, you know, when the, the phone rings and stuff. It's pretty <laughs> wild. All these yeah. 70s renegade males. I, are, I love it. Yeah, Sam Peck and Paul just <laughs> literally look at, like, I think it was a prerequisite that you had to wander around your house, shoot out all the mirrors. Jesus. <laughs> but yeah, but so Jack Nietzsche, I mean, you don't hear a lot of his music because Freakin purposely didn't use it during 
horror scenes or the scenes you would think. He kind of just uses it transitionally a little bit. And once again, it goes back to that confidence. That's not a conventional choice. I could also see how he was telling that to a producer. The producer would be justifying going like, I don't know. Well, we could really use some spooky music here, you know? But yeah, I think he just innately knew that that's what we were going for. And probably because he wanted to keep it, uh, yeah, keep it grounded in, in realism. Yeah, and I'm just thinking about Kinderman also, like you guys are saying, like like the fact that he is this pretty savvy detective, but he's like asking for autographs and talking about germs mm-hmm. and all this. I mean, I love that we can see him also be kind of a lonely, bumbling man in many ways. But anyway, I could I could go on and on, as they say. Yeah, the 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 one thing I want to note with just the cast in general is just everyone doesn't feel no one feels like a caricature. You know, like even Burke Den- like he feels like a filmmaker of that era. You know, and and Kinderman, you know, when you look at the page, he's somewhat of a caricature. He's the the Jewish detective that is very neurotic and loves movies and and goes on the diatribes. And I love it all. I, he's one of my favorite characters in literary horror that uh, you know I've come across in recent years now. Because like, I Legion is he's just phenomenal in that that character. But they don't. They all come off as pretty real and pretty you know with with a lot of nuance in there that doesn't necessarily involve tons of heavy lifting it just involves being there and having some sort of presence without stealing the screen and that's like kind of a hard tango to you know to do to pull off i i would imagine because it, i just think it like if you're getting a kinderman character like it is today it's it i imagine in lesser hands i mean i haven't seen believer but I, it could become like the Johnny Depp's uh, detective from like Tusk or something like that. And, and it's just, it's not, it's, it's, it's just, it's incredibly organic. They all come from, they all have a purpose and yet they also all feel like human beings. And that's to me mm-hmm. is for me, that's like an encapsulation of what seventies filmmaking is, is that yeah. you have all these memorable larger than life. Like, like for example, you love Charles Bronson. Right? Yes. Larger the life character, yet you feel he's a human being, right? Mm-hmm. Like at, in most of the work. So and that was right from the 70s for the most part. So it's just, there's something about this era that was able to do that. And I wonder if it was because a lot of these guys were, who are making these movies came from that background of capturing life itself with, you know, tools that they had. It's funny. I was thinking about this, just thinking about like, okay, the idea of, who else could have potentially made this film, right? And thinking about yeah. the film we would have got, like this same story, but like, what if De Palma made this story? I know. Like, it's like, okay, well, I feel like he would focus way more on like the psychology or like the the psyche of it and be, it'd be a little bit trippier. And then it's like, okay, what if Cronenberg made this film? Oh, like just body horror central or what if Coppola made this film? <laughs> like, oh gosh, it's... I feel... I'm, I'm, I feel like the closest... If it was going to be another 70s auteur and it was going to feel close, I feel like Polanski would probably feel the closest That's tone-wise. That's what I thought, too. Yeah, yeah, like you think about Rosemary's Baby. And same mm-hmm. thing, but same thing, like the book. Like, I love the book. I, I need to read the Rosemary's book for Rosemary's Baby. Baby. It's very, like, similarly a great adaptation. Like, Does it inc- lean incredible adaptation. And spoiler alert for anyone who hasn't seen Rosemary's Baby, although I'm pretty sure most of our listeners have, because that movie, once again, um, that kind of keeps you guessing about the ambiguity until the very end and mm-hmm. where it really comes hard on literalism. Is the book like that or does the book oh, yeah. kind of keep it more open-ended? Oh, it's same thing. Yeah. 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 And it's just, yeah. So I, I mean, I don't like Polanski obviously now, but 
style-wise, that feels the closest. But yeah. it's, well, it's, you know who was originally going to make this before you passed on it? It was Stanley Kubrick. And that's hmm, Kubrick could have. That's interesting. <laughs> it may have, it would have felt colder. I think. Yes. I don't mean that literally in the room. I mean, I this movie has a warmth to it. Like when we you think about it, might be the first scene we see here. I'm not sure, but it's early on when Linda Blair Reagan is talking to Chris and she's like, how's mm-hmm. your day? And she talks about riding the horse mm-hmm. and it, you're just seeing this kid just mm-hmm. overwhelmingly oh, yeah. gush about her favorite animal. Right. Yeah. Like there's a warmth to that scene and that's all. I mean, we get more thankfully, but even if we didn't get any more scenes with Chris and Regan pre possession, mm-hmm. that's all we need to understand the relationship between that mother and daughter. It's pivotal. I don't know if Kubrick, not that Kubrick couldn't paint complex relationships, but there's always like a frostiness to everyone interacting in a Kubrick movie. I mean, look at The Shining, perfect example. Like, it takes the warmth out of that story, which is fine. I love The Shining, but like, I don't know what's the warmest Kubrick movie. I'm, I'm trying to think. Probably Strange Love, <laughs> which is funny because it's about the end yeah. of the world. But I mean, when you think about it, he loves he loves silence. He yeah. loves this. He loves the stare. He loves the long shot. I. I think the movie would work still, but you're right that it, it would they would not have the humanity that this movie needs and that what it thrives yeah. from, which is what I feel like that's been like the key word for us uh, yeah. in this 50 or I mean, 15 I, I guess you, if I'm thinking of um, Hollerin's, Dick Hollerin's scenes with Danny and Wendy mm-hmm. in The Shining, there's some warmth there for sure. A little bit, yeah. Um, even but one person's sta- staring still. And it's yeah, always, it's true. You don't see a lot of just like there's always someone dead. Like it's just or like just kind of sitting there. And I just you need the two pieces to keep yeah. bouncing off each other. Yeah, because um, even I was thinking about Full Metal Jacket. You see some camaraderie between the soldiers, especially when they're in Vietnam. But even then, it's like it's just all laced with people being the most horrible versions of themselves in many ways. And mm-hmm. even though this movie is about demon possession, I would argue you're act maybe with the exception of Burke. I think you're actually seeing everyone in this movie trying to be the best version of themselves. And they're struggling with that. We see that with Karis and how he feels like he failed his mother. We see it with Chris and how she feels like she's failing as a mother, but everyone's trying really hard to do the right thing in this movie. Whereas with Kubrick, it's almost like they're being excused to be the most detached version of themselves that they can be. And so I think that's why, I mean, I'm not saying I wouldn't have liked it. I mean, I maybe who knows? Stanley Kubrick's The Exorcist could have been really cool, but yeah, I think it maybe would have been different. Did he say why he didn't end up doing it? Was it just scheduling? We kind of talk a little bit about it in The Shining: Long Watch, where he he was searching for a horror story. He wanted to do a horror movie finally, and he like went on a tear trying to find it, and he had been pushing putting it off forever. And I think after Barry Lyndon, which is after this movie. He, uh, rest in peace, Ryan O'Neill, they, he was like, all right, I'm going to finally do this. I need a hit. I'm going to go and make a horror movie. And I, you know, I think if this opportunity came to him, then it might've worked, but you know, Kubrick also doesn't believe in God and he doesn't believe in hell. Like he doesn't believe, I mean, these are all things we learned from the making of the shining. So I don't know. Yeah, it's not it's, his story. To tell. <laughs> it really isn't. And I, I, I think out of all the ones that you've mentioned, I do think that Polanski is probably the best. I think De Palma takes it too stylish. Yeah. What if Bergman? <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it would be incredible. I mean, it's if it was Bergman, pro- the whole, it would all feel like the opening, I think, right? Well, and hey, yeah. he, I mean, Bergman used uh, Max von Sydow quite a bit back in the yeah. day. So, yeah. I could see Sidney Lumet making this too. But Oh, that's a good one. What know? about, uh, I don't think he would because I, I don't, did he ever, did 
depth source material. I'm not sure. Like John Cassavetes, maybe. Speaking Ooh, of he Donner, was good too. What about Richard Donner. <laughs> oh I mean, wow! I love the Omen, and that's somewhat. That's his I know. It's like this, he's handled right? something you know? similar. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. was wait, wait, the Omen was after this because Omen's 76, right? Uh, yeah, Omen was after this. Okay. You know, I thought the Omen was based on a book until recently I discovered it wasn't. It's just the original yeah, that's, story. Yeah, I, I, I think we talked about that in one of the episodes. Yeah. But I, I just assumed that. We got, the, unfortunately, we have to keep, uh, keep going ah, here man. because I want we, to talk we're, about more we're the Catholic thing, but yeah. I know, yeah. I know. Yeah, but no, yeah, keep, keep going, keep going. Well, I think the Catholic thing is going to tie into this because I don't think we'll ever get like a horror movie of this magnitude, right? Like when you think about it, the state of Catholicism back then is so much different than it is now or the state of Christianity, any of it really, the state of religion. I mean, we're at right now a point mm-hmm. where- Well, most people aren't people don't even, religious anymore, no. right? Not, and I, th- I think, right? In the US it's diminishing. Anyway. It's diminishing. The, the high, I think we have like the highest rate of atheists we've had to date so far. And I just don't know if this, if this movie hits that pulse- the same way. Let's say this movie never happened. I mean, this is so ridiculous, but let's say there's been no possession movies ever. <laughs> like, <laughs> finally, someone's like, holy shit. Did you see what this guy, William Peter Blatty, wrote f- 45, 50 years ago? We should make this fucking movie. And like, I, I just don't think you would have the sort of connection that it would have at the time when you're coming off the 60s where everything is already sort of shifting and changing in Americana values and stuff i just think it, it was like the right place at the right time to well do yeah this. the right period of time of people yeah. you know it's so disillusioned everybody's getting you know disillusioned during this time period for in a, a variety of things in the government and the american value system and religion it's just the right place at the right time like you said thinking a lot about this though and time will tell but I think maybe one of the closest things that we'll see to this in terms of like influence, impact, and enduring legacy and kind of reputation, maybe get out. Yeah. I think yeah, so. Yeah, it That's does feel born one. of that time and also not commenting on the thing in the exact way that you think it's going to. Because yeah. I feel like before I saw Get Out, I thought it was just going to be explicit racism rather than implicit racism. You know, like the the racists in Get Out were way, way like, I was saying more complex than I thought they were going to be, but it just wasn't the device I thought was going to be used, you know? And I, I think there's a similar thing to be had here. But like also box office wise, Oscar nominated mm-hmm. film, Oscar winning film, screenplay. It's just like, it kind of checks some of the similar boxes. And also I think like the impact and influence of that, we're going to, con- I mean, we're still seeing it. Yeah. And I think we'll continue to see that. And also a really strong vision too. Did that arrive like, Two or three months after Trump had assumed uh, the office, too. Get was out. It February or March. I was, of yeah, because I was in Austin for my grad school interview, which was like February of 2017. So Trump yeah. would have just been, and I think the movie had been out a little bit too. So, um, so like, yeah, like The Exorcist. I mean, this this arrived at the perfect timing because I'm thinking of like, is it Water look after at, Watergate? Right. Water, I'm, I was going to look that up just now. Yeah, you're right. You're reading my mind. Yeah. Well, and it's in Washington D.C. and I love that it's in Washington, but they're not going like all oh, those fat cats up. It's just like a, right. It's being just surrounded, setting. Yeah. Exactly. Being surrounded by stateliness and institutions and everything. I, I, it's funny too because. I don't want to say movies have gotten less specific in general because you can find really specific movies. I mean, I, th- I think this year, especially killers of the flower moon, the killer. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I'm not saying people don't make specific decisions anymore, but if we say, Oh, what would the exorcist look like now in 2023? I don't, I don't mean to keep ragging on it, but 
Look at Believer, right? We see. So, we see what it's going to... It's like they and, took all the wrong things from this movie. And, and they like, tried to make... Spoiler alert if you haven't seen Believer, but they tried to make it about everyone and yeah. safe for all religions and make it harmonious. And I'm not religious in the slightest. And I love how Catholic the exorcist is. I love yeah. that it's like, no, God is real. Demons exist. The Catholics got it right. And where they do it now, it's like you got to please everyone and you have to make sure everyone's invited in. And it just makes the movie so toothless and yeah. nonspecific. And I'm worried that even if they tried to say they had remade The Exorcist instead of doing this kind of retcon sequel, I think they still would have gone a similar route. I think they would have been very afraid to make it staunchly Catholic, especially given all the yeah, scandals the church has gone through by this point, which I, I, I understand that too. It's extent. ironic though that Blumhouse made it because it's like, I mean, that's exactly what all the Conjuring and Nun movies are, which. Yeah, that's a good point. I, so I yeah. also kind of love them for what they are. Like, oh, I, I do too. I yeah. enjoy those. <laughs> but I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't put it in the same tier as like, you know, the get out, like you were saying, no, or, no, no. or this one. I think there's something about, yeah. well, it goes back to the source material. I mean, you, these are one and done stories. Like there's a reason why every exorcist entry that doesn't lean on Blatty's sex absolutely fumble. I mean, Heretic's <laughs> original <laughs> script that is just, is just a, one it's of the wild. biggest blunders of all time. <laughs> people saying it's good now. Um, it's like a thing. Well, now. everyone yeah. does that. But I think the thing with is that when people actually get 25 minutes into it, they go, Oh, I'm, I don't know if I want to do this take anymore because it's just on paper. It makes sense. There's some cool visuals. There's some cool visuals <laughs> and it's definitely a swing in a way that believer isn't, yeah. but you know, even exorcist three has his major faults with it. Like I, you know, I, I think even like freaking at that point, he was, you know, he was asked to direct it and he was th- considering it. I think even Carpenter was at one point uh, asked to do it. He, they all, you know, there's something, there's something very uh, precious about this original movie. Yeah. And, and that I think that it's one of the reasons why I think freaking was so on edge about the sequel in the eighties. And there's that iconic interview with him with McGarris where he's just like, Kind of going off on the movie. It's like right before they present it, it's in theaters or something like that. Yeah. I can't remember if it was in theaters or if it was. I think it was in theaters, and they were showing the original one on TV. And he just goes off on it. And then there's the stories that you hear about him, like hearing about the test screenings and stuff. It's just there was a vitriol. No, everyone's afraid to do it now. I miss directors talking man. Oh, hundred percent. Like he calls yeah. John Borman a moron for yeah. what two was and everything. And yeah. uh, I mean, look, I love Exorcist Three. I do. But I don't know. I mean, I feel like there's people out there who say it's like as good as the first one or on that. Some level. people say like, it's better than the first one. I mean, look, man, I'm oh, so. Wow. I mean, look, an opinion is there's no accounting for taste. But th- like you said, there's. I hate. I don't use this word about anything, but there is something sacred and precious about this movie. And once again, I don't know if it's because of any strategy. I think it was just like the stars aligned and magic happened. I mean, there's something. I, I love three. Three is like a good horror movie. Exorcist is something else. Yeah. I, I think when you look at the fact that this comes from not only a, a, a incredible book, but also a story, you know, that a lot of people would nowadays would just do like a YouTube video for five minutes and talk about how they can debunk it. At the time, you know, we didn't have those powers. <laughs> yeah. I, whether that that's fortunate or unfortunate, I don't know. You decide. But you know, at the time, it's almost like the way that we look at urban legends. It's it's kind of like the way that Halloween works in the sense that. You know, we all have that story, that ghost story in our our neighborhood about mm-hmm. the boogeyman mm-hmm. or about something that happened five or 10, 15, 20 years ago and how it's still, it's still ubiquitous, even though it's three or four generations removed. I would say when it comes to genre stories, 
or genre films, you know, based on I'm trying to say like not based on a true story. Cause you look at based on a true story as something like, you know, movies that we dramas, obviously the direct, the, you know, the page to screen is going to be fairly you know, seamless. But like when you're dealing with something where they're speculating that there's supernatural involved, whenever you get the base on a true story for horror, it is so elastic that sentence and that phrasing. Whereas in this case, it's pretty true. It stays committed to that that the the actual incident that happened in a way that they're able to extrapolate and create a compelling story on it, thanks to Blatty. And I think that's why this movie will never be franchisable. It's a one. In, it, it's just it's so contained that anything else just makes it feel you know cyclical. Unless you're bringing something to the table, which Legion does, but the film largely ignores all those components that make Legion special. And so, and Blatty directed it. So I, I just, for me, it's, I've never understood people going back to the well to this. And I guess one of the last questions here is, is there ever been a possession movie that comes even close to being this good and this important and this vital and this scary? I mean, my favorite one is the last exorcism. Mm. which I like a lot. I, I don't want to mean some, I don't think most movies are on the level of the exorcist period. So I don't want to say it comes close, but I do like it a lot. I think it's a super effective possession film what about you, Rachel thinking about possession broadly, the shining kind of. <laughs> yeah. Oh, come I mean, on. That's a ghost. I, <laughs> <that's> <laughs> yeah. But like the, yeah, the hotel, yeah. I, I think, but I think it, it, there's an argument to be made, but I mean, maybe, I guess Rosemary's, maybe, Baby, Maybe, but that's before this, that's right? Not, yeah, and that's not even possession. Yeah. She gets raped by the devil. It's different. Uh, yeah. Sinister? <laughs> I love how matter-of-factly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe Sinister. Like Sinister is really good. Well, and Sinister is, I mean, this is always called the scariest movie of all time, right? But also, you Google that, and you're going to get Sinister, too. It's either like The Exorcist yeah. or Sinister. And that is a possession movie. It's pretty freaky, you guys. I like I like Sinister. Uh, people call it the scariest movie of all time, though. Really, like it, outside The Exorcist, there it's this. There's that science. It's like the science poll, right? That they based on like viewers, oh, uh, like heart rate and everything. But if yeah. you're looking at it from like prestige and quality, like I think Sinister is a great movie, but I, I like Sinister too. a lot. It's, it's, it's really not, yeah. you know, exploring the same quite ideas and level of ideas. It's not going to be nominated for an Oscar, but I do think it's up there. I guess. It's competition. Yeah. I'm not yeah. saying it's going to win. <laughs> hey, scariest movie of all time. I feel like Halloween, Texas Chainsaw. I mean, hey, the Texas 70s Chainsaws. movies. Texas Chainsaw actually might be like the scariest of all Scary. time. Objectively for me. Yeah. For me, it's always the trifecta of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, mm-hmm. The Exorcist, mm-hmm. Night of the Living Dead. I still yeah. think those three yeah. are, I think those three right there for me are, I mean, you look back now, we, we certainly have the leash to show, to see like how influential it's been and they're still talked about. They're still trying to, they still yeah. try you know, to do this formula again and again. And I think if anything, that's something to take away from the sequels and the reboots and yada, yada, yada is how many times has this been replicated? And holy shit, those three movies have just, I mean, same with, you could toss in Halloween, and technically Black Christmas, but those are the film. You look at those texts, those core texts and trace the line of how many movies have come out since then that have tried to ape it, what it's done. I think that's where you kind of see the line of, what would really hit the pulse of America or the world yeah. that has since been a cheap trying to copy pasta and it's never going to happen. Uh, I think this is the one out of those three that you could safely say cannot be replicated. Yeah. Out of those three. 
but I think this is it. We only have 50 minutes. So we tried to give ourselves, look, we, we could, t- again, we could talk about this movie for fucking. Oh, I could go for forever. Ever, yeah. Forever. <laughs> but we will, you know, I'm, I don't want to confirm anything because logically, if you think about it, we should have done The Exorcist this year, given that the, the, the Believer came out. But you know, let's just say we had a little premonition ourselves that it was, uh, it wasn't meant to be. So I'm kind of glad that we covered Chucky because it's become definitely my favorite franchise and, or one of my favorite franchises now. But maybe we'll do The Exorcist you know, one day for its 55th anniversary or the 60th. Can you imagine if we're doing it in 10 years? We're still doing Halloweenies. I'm like 46 years old or something like that, or 40... I think it would be 46. Actually, It'd be older than I'd be that, like, 10 years. No, I'll be 49. Holy <laughs> shit. Yeah, so I. Uh, so, uh, 60th anniversary of. The, ah, 49 is a battle. I know, it's not. It's, <laughs> God, we'll see if we are, but any final thoughts on uh, The Exorcist? Great movie. I was yeah. getting, just going to say that. Hey, it's a great movie. Yeah. Five stars. I think it's pretty cool. So, <laughs> and that's pretty cool. Uh, well, that was our first run. I think we went a little over, but. Let's just consider the outro, the intro, fluff. And that doesn't go to the runtime. Well, we've got a lot up ahead. Uh, we've got our year-end list of our favorite horror movies. We are going to be doing a long, or not a long, wrong podcast. Uh, we're going to be doing a rental on Black Christmas in our Patreon, www.patreon.com slash Pod. It's a Black Christmas that we're covering. Is it the original one? I don't know. Just join and you'll find out. It's a black Christmas. That's all we can say. That's all we can say. Yeah. We, you know, one of the, it, it's, it, it could happen. This is, you know, Mick world. But after all this, we're looking up to the stars. And some of us are already there. Some of us have already actually taken flight and, and they're far, far, far beyond Earth at this point. And all of us will certainly be at that same point in a few weeks because we are going to be covering the Alien franchise all of the Alien films, including Fetty Alvarez's new film and probably the show when it comes out in 2025. Uh, so yeah, this is, this is an exciting time to be a Halloweenies fan. It's an exciting time for us to be Halloweenies co-hosts. Are you all looking forward to Alien? Oh, I'm, oh, I'm so ready. Like, so I'm, I'm like really excited. What if you said like, uh, actually, it's, yeah, it's pretty shite. Yeah, I really want to do um, the Exorcist series and yeah. stuff. <laughs> so, yeah. Well, one of these days. Until then, though, we don't really have a sign-off because we, uh, you know, we, we were done with Chucky. So I'll I'll do one. What is there a good Exorcist uh, quote that we the could? The power maybe of pods sign? compel you. Ooh, the power of pods <laughs> compel you to stay listening and see us next week. This is the end of our show, for now. We hope you enjoyed this production. If you like our programming, consider searching for other bloody disgusting podcasts, such as Creepy, Horror Queers, The Boo Crew, SCP Archives, Nightlight, Margaret's Garden, and more. <laughs>